0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. Congratulations, everyone. We made it through January. We made it to the Biden administration. A bunch of you have already received a COVID vaccination. Spring may feel like a while off, but it is coming. I was talking recently to someone about how, when I was recording the first episode back in August, I was like, well, we'd better talk about the pandemic because it might be over by the time the next episode airs. (sighs) LOL. (laughs) Anyway, I can joke about that now because the end is in sight, I can feel it. It's another great episode today. I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Harmon to talk about her research on trophic interactions and predator-prey dynamics in insects. I loved hearing about her unconventional path into science and life in a dual career couple. Dr Baku Rastalofonyena chatted to me about her recent paper on neophobia in a Madagascan mongoose. And then Sarah and I were joined by Dr Muriel Allen and Dr Lucy Kirkpatrick to share their experiences of starting a family as an early career researcher. Lots of great insight there, including tips on how we can all better support colleagues with families. So really relevant to everyone. That's all coming up. But first, my conversation with Dr. Sarah Herman. Today's guest is Sarah Herman, an assistant professor of entomology and ecology at the Pennsylvania State University, working on arthropod ecology and trophic interactions. Sarah, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really enjoying the podcast so far. So I'm happy to be here. So I got to know you and your work when you arrived at Penn State when I was there doing a postdoc. So I know your more recent life history, but I realized as I was preparing for today that I don't know much about how you got started in ecology and evolution. So, what got you into insects, if it was insects that kind of first lured you in, and then this field ultimately? Yeah, no, it's a really good question.
1: And I think it's important to kind of tell the story of our paths because they can be so different. Um, So I began my higher education journey in community college because I didn't get into a four-year university and I sort of at that time was feeling really sad about that and lost in terms of what I would do. And so I started at this community college studying environmental science and it was just a really small program and I was just trying to find my way, basically, navigate uncharted waters, being, you know, the first person in my family to go to college, I just really didn't know what that looked like, or what it felt like. I never saw myself becoming an entomologist. (laughs) It's kind of funny that I ended up where I did because of that. But what happened when I was doing my, um, my community college classes, I met my now husband, um, Jared Ali, who was doing his master's in entomology and wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware. So it wasn't until I met him that I even understood that research was a path that you could take. And that graduate school was even a thing because to me college was still sort of this amorphous thing that I was figuring out. So when I met him, it kind of um, blew my mind that you could study these strange little interactions. He was studying cucumber beetle sexual selection. And so I decided that I wanted to keep on that path. And he finished his master's and we had started dating and he decided to go to Florida, University of Florida for his PhD. And so not being very good at long distance relationships, soon after he moved, I went down there and moved in with him. And so I continued to go to college in Florida, but as a job on the side, I started working in the research lab of a new entomologist professor, Lucas Zielinski. So still, I really didn't have a ton of interest or thought about working with insects, but I found myself working in an entomology lab. I guess what really made me get into research is that I was taking these environmental science and policy classes. I was on the law track. So I was kind of thinking about going to law school, and, and my teacher suggested that it would be a good option for me moving forward. But I was taking this environmental law class, and I was taking a sustainability class, and I think that's when the light bulb went off in my head. So I'd been doing the research at the same time on the side and found it really interesting and fun. And I realized that the research that I was doing was sort of the backbone to policy change. And so the, that highlighted the importance of doing scientific research and how um, I might be able to find a way to sort of merge the world of policy with science in my future career. So I started to take more of a, a leadership position in the lab where I was working I did my undergraduate thesis in that lab, looking at ways to manage pests without insecticides. And so I was looking at, you know, behavioral responses to botanicals, um, attractants and repellents. And I started looking at
0: parasitoids and how they might be influencing populations of pests as well. And then from there, you did your master's at Cornell and then your PhD at Michigan State. Do you want to talk us through those projects?
1: Yeah. So. Um, When I started my master's at Cornell, I felt really lucky because I had had some experience um, doing this behavioral ecology work in Florida, and I had a little bit of experience looking at um, parasitoid dynamics. And my lab at Cornell with Dr. Jennifer Thaler was looking at predator-prey dynamics of this major insect pest. So it sort of was a way for me to continue some of my interests that I realized in Florida through my master's project. And so, This is where I started to also get my formal education in ecology. Since I was on the policy and law track for my undergrad, I actually had never taken an ecology course or an evolution course until I went to my master's. And so I realized that in doing some of the sustainable ag work, you could also answer basic ecology questions. So working uh, with Jennifer Thaler, I was able to merge my interest of identifying alternative control methods with um, questions in basic ecology. So I studied the impacts of predation risk on this major agricultural pest, the Colorado potato beetle, and I did experiments to look at how a predator of this beetle could influence it without consuming it. So this is when I started to do my work on predation risk and non-consumptive effects, which is sort of um, the foundation of my lab still at Penn State University. And so it's this idea that you know the mere presence of a predator can influence the behavior or physiology of its prey without consuming it. And this these anti-predator behaviors that the prey exhibit when avoiding being eaten can be really influential on you know their own individual success as well as what they do to the host plants, which they feed on. And so we were looking at non-consumptive effects and predation risk impacts in this system with this angle of enhancing biological control. And we found that when the predator stink bug was present near the Colorado potato beetle, they would reduce their feeding, they would reduce their oviposition. And these are all really good things for the host plant that they're feeding on. So it got me really excited and interested in looking at how predation risk can influence prey organisms in these important agricultural systems, but also figuring out and identifying what the mechanisms that allow prey to detect predators are. And so I started to study more of these chemical ecology questions, isolating the scent of the stink bugs, exposing these prey to that scent, those odor cues from the predators and seeing if I saw the same shifts in behavior. And I did. And that's really exciting because now this work is being done still in her lab with her new PhD student um, to try to bring this to the field and see if they can disrupt these behaviors in the field setting to achieve pest management and reduce damage on the crops. So it's a really exciting way to blend these basic ecology questions, looking at predation risk and predator prey dynamics with something that's really tangible, potentially in agricultural systems.
0: And then your PhD continued along these themes.
1: Yes, it did. I I went to Michigan State to work with Dr. Doug Landis, and the idea there was to continue on this stream of research looking at predation risk impacts in agricultural systems, but we wanted to sort of scale up and out. We wanted to increase our understanding of how these interactions function at larger spatial and temporal scales, which is clearly going to be really important if we use these things in um, pest management in practice. So with that work, we wanted to look at how landscape and habitat composition influence species interactions. And through a series of unfortunate events that happen sometimes in research, that didn't quite come to fruition. <laughs> uh, what I did get to do was look at some more species comparisons, different predator-prey pairs. I found that in some systems, we really don't see predation risk impacts, whereas in other systems we do. That started to get me excited about, you know, what context dependency occurs when we're thinking about predation risk in insect systems. And then during this time, I also worked with several undergraduate researchers, one who completed an honors thesis. And she was really excited about some uh, aspect of research in the lab on the monarch butterfly that was happening while I was there. And so we did her thesis looking at predators of monarch butterflies. Um, and so we identified a ton of predators that eat the eggs and larvae, which is sort of an overlooked aspect of monarch biology, which is super surprising, especially since they're in decline and it seems that so many people are doing so much awesome research on them. We were trying to fill that gap in understanding what predators are consuming, these really important stages that we have up to 90% losses of in the summer breeding range, but why is that happening? So we identified all these predators. And while we were doing that, we found Um, some really cool observations. So we saw on each milkweed that we were surveying for predators and uh, monarchs, that we'd see ants crawling on these leaves and these stands of milkweed. And so as a side project, before I left the lab, we decided to start to look at how maybe ant disturbance or predation risk by ants might influence monarch success. What we found is that ant presence on those plants, they don't necessarily eat the monarchs that they find, but they do disturb them to the point where, you know, they are going to feed and forage less, move differently, Mm -hmm. and grow at a different rate. So this this work is ongoing in my lab. Again, with my master's student, we're now adding the dynamic of plant defenses and just sequestration modulate the predator-prey interactions between monarchs and their major predators. So it's a really exciting area of research that brings me outside of the agricultural realm, but I'm really excited about being a part of it.
0: So you fairly recently set up your lab as an assistant professor at Penn State. You mentioned a little bit of the research you've got going on at the moment. How are you enjoying life as a PI?
1: Well, it's been
0: interesting to say the
1: least. I mean, starting a lab in COVID times has not been easy at all. I had my first semester under the, my belt before, you know, the pandemic hit and in that first semester I started teaching right away, I accepted the job and started teaching two weeks later. So it's been kind of a whirlwind where I've been, you know, managing, um, finding people that wanna work with me, um, hiring a technician, ordering my lab stuff. And then with the pandemic, shifting all of that to working from home with my two kids. (laughs) And so it's been definitely challenging. But I do have a master's student and a postdoc that started in August. Research is happening. In the College of Ag, we are essential workers because agricultural <laughs>
2: research oh, is sure. essential.
1: Yeah. So we haven't had, you know, much of a stop, though it looks very different.
0: Any other research projects that you want to go into?
1: Yeah. So in, in the lab we have this line of work that's looking at monarch predator-prey interactions. But the other line of work that's happening is looking at predation risk impacts on uh, aphids by their lady beetle predators. This is something that I found during my my PhD program when I did a field experiment where I released predator cues in an open field and assessed colonizing aphids. And we found that there are more aphids colonizing plants where there were not predator cues and far fewer in the predator cue treatments. And so We're looking at some more of these behavioral and physiological impacts of um, these odor cues by these lady beetle predators on on the aphids. We're looking at feeding with this really cool machine called an EPG, and it can measure the waveforms of feeding um, by an aphid. Oh, that injects its stylet its, yeah, into a plant. It's really cool. It's hard. Aphids are small, so it's hard to do behavior with them, yeah. especially if you're working with a species that doesn't drop off of a plant, which ours does not. And so we're trying to get creative to look at sort of some of the behaviors that are really important to their um, pest status, like feeding. So the goal is to bring these predator cues to the field, assess how they influence these aphids in terms of colonization and impact on the plants and virus transmission, as well as look at how these predator cues might influence other community dynamics. We know that if we change something in the field, like make it seem kind of scary if there's a lot of predator smell, could that influence other organisms that are interacting in that habitat? And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to reach that goal of increasing our spatial and temporal understanding of predator-prey interactions in these agricultural systems so that we might be able to down the road have some pest management strategies that are alternatives to chemical input.
0: Lastly, we're obviously going to talk a bit more about your family life later in the episode, but you are also a big role model for me as one half of a dual career couple that has managed to be consistently employed in the same place. And ultimately, you've ended up at the same institution as your lovely husband, Jared, which is obviously goals. (laughs) Uh, We could do a whole podcast just on this, but what advice would you give people who are hoping to make this work as you guys have?
1: Yeah, I have to say that I feel really, really lucky. Jared and I have sort of been in this journey for a long time, 13 years now, juggling and moving together and figuring out how to make it work. And for us, we've had some fantastic mentors. Every person that we've worked with since Jared's PhD has been a part of a dual career academic couple at some capacity. And so we've always had these mentors to give us advice and look up to and, yeah, just help us when we needed it. Mentorship is so important. And so Jared has been always you know a couple steps ahead of me because he started his PhD when I was in my undergrad and so he was doing his postdoc when I did my masters he had his first faculty position when I was doing my PhD and then in the middle of that he got the faculty position at Penn State where we are now and you know it, there's a lot of uncertainty we had no idea if it would work out we feel really grateful that it did we feel so supported at Penn State our department is fantastic yeah i mean i think what's really important is to give each other space and help when we need it. So when Jared was applying for jobs, you know, all of our energy was sort of shunted towards him. But when he got a job, got a grant, he shunted a lot of his energy to supporting me. And he's been really instrumental in my success because he's been a primary caregiver to our kids while I was finishing up my PhD from a distance driving back and forth to Michigan. So we've definitely had, you know, challenging times. We've definitely lived apart. We've Definitely not known if it was going to work out in the end. And we just stayed positive, worked as hard as we could, doing what we love, and got lucky. <laughs> in some ways, it's luck that really helps at the end.
0: It's just been great for people like me to see, you know, couples like you and others that we also know who have uh, who have made it work. So
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's way more common than we really let ourselves know. And so it depends on the institution, the department, the college, whether or not they're going to support that, because it can be a really good investment if you get two good people. But that's why it's important to try to, you know, make your CV look as good as possible if you're the lagging person, or, you know, really be supportive of each other through the process to, you know, try to lift each other up and
0: help make that case. So, you will stick around for our roundtable segment. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's been great to talk to you. Yes,
1: thank you so much.
0: Today's paper in focus is from the journal Animal Cognition and takes a look at social learning in a mongoose species. It's great to be joined by the lead author, Dr. Baku Rasolofoniena, a researcher at the German Primate Center. Baku, welcome to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast.
3: Hi, Kirstie. Uh, thank you for having me.
0: So your new paper is called Neophobia and Social Facilitation in Narrow Striped Mongooses. Yes.
3: It is an endemic carnivore species in Madagascar, and they can be found in the western part in uh, Kilindi forest. It is one of the remaining parts of dry deciduous forest in Madagascar, and they are restricted in this uh, region actually. But as well, uh, social learning strategies is less often studied experimentally in carnivores. And we wanted to add a comparative data to this gap.
0: So the title mentions neophobia. For people who don't know what that is, what does neophobia mean?
3: So neophobia or uh, the fear of novelty, basically, is a personality trait. Uh, so, it is a behavior that is consistent over time. We looked at it in the narrow striped mongoose because they are forest dwelling, and uh, we thought that probably neophobia uh, or the presence of novelty will trigger some fear to them. And indeed, neophobia actually was found to hinder the ability to learn in many
0: species. This species lives in groups?
3: Yes, so actually for narrow striped mongoose, uh, they, it's uh, quite special. This species is characterized with a uh, sexual segregation, so female living group, and it is a group characterized with matrilineal hierarchy, so it is a family, mother and her, all her daughters, and um, the males they are solitary so when they are adults they leave the group and they become solitary.
0: So in this study you were looking at how neophobia and being in a social group might potentially interact and influence social learning. So how did you go about testing that?
3: So, I've done a fieldwork in Kirindi Forest. There, there is a research station of the German Primate Center, and there was an habituated population of narrow-striped mongoose already. So, this population is marked individually, and they are used to the presence of humans. To assess neophobia, first I used uh, novel object tests by presenting novel objects to the individual and uh, to assess social learning i have used called social diffusion experiments i tested actually only the female because they are living in group the male as well were not really easy to track or to test because they were running non-stop and not really, they were more interested in following the female because it was during the mating season uh, So, the mating season of this species is overlapping with the dry season, and they could work only during the dry season.
0: Challenges of field work. (laughs) So, you used an experiment that uses a demonstrator, is that right? Yeah. So, can you describe what that looks like?
3: Yeah. uh, For the experiment, we use this demonstrator observer paradigm. In the group, I test one individual which will be the demonstrator. And for the Neurostriped mongoose, because they have uh, this matrilineal hierarchy, as I said, so the oldest female is always the dominant. And she, as she's the dominant, she, she always monopolized everything. And it was easy for me then to choose her as the demonstrator first. And I trained her uh, with one box. And this box is provided with one technique. So, and these techniques can be sliding the door to open the box or pulling up the door. I trained the demonstrator and when she learned the task, so when she reached a certain learning criterion, then I trained her with the whole group all together. And then I see whether the other group members copied her behavior or not.
0: So they're opening the door to get at a food item or something like yes. that?
3: I I used as bait for this uh, experiment tri-cat food because they really liked it. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, I used to work on meerkats a long time ago oh, yeah. and um, for them it's it's boiled egg. Uh, yeah, the,
3: yeah.
0: That's what we love more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what were the results of this experiment?
3: So for this experiment, I looked at several aspects to came to my conclusion about social learning strategy. So whether the, the overgroup members are interested in acquiring social information and what may influence it. So in my study, I looked only at the effect of neophobia and indeed, uh, during this um, demonstrator session, when I trained the demonstrator, I presented only one box to the demonstrator but the overgroup members they were observing around uh, this demonstrator and some even came very close to her like uh, next to the box as well and i measured the time the observers so the overgroup members spent with the demonstrator and this was my proxy as how this individual acquire social information and I looked if it was influenced by neophobia, but it wasn't, which was really interesting because we thought that, for example, less nepho- uh, more neophobic individual will tend to observe more the demonstrator. Then when this was done, I trained the whole group, which is the group session. And from the group session, I measured the learning speed or learning performance of the other group members. And this time I could find that less neophobic observer, they learn faster the task, so they required less trial to reach the learning criterion. Individuals that observed longer the demonstrator, closely, they learned as well faster. I had as well two other groups that were control group. Uh, Control group mean Means that there was no demonstrator, but I trained these groups directly with a task with the two techniques available, and I wanted to see if they can learn without a demonstrator. And I found that individuals, when they are provided with a demonstrator, they could learn faster than those uh, provided without a demonstrator, indeed. Some fun part in the fieldwork I would like to share. Our scary part in the (laughs) fieldwork. As I said, the Neurostraped mongoose, they are, it is a small carnivore. Very small, like 500 grams. They are elusive. And uh, once it happened to me that uh, because to find them, I radio tracked them. So for me, it was easy to say, OK, if I go to this part of the forest, I'm sure I will find this group. But once I couldn't find them and I was really wondering how is it so hard to find them? The signals of the radio is so high here, so loud. And ah, they were on the trees at the canopy. They were just sitting there all together and they were looking at me. <laughs> and yeah it's um, sometimes there is little fun like this.
0: Did you enjoy studying in Germany?
3: Yes I really liked it because I discovered a lot so it's very different from Madagascar where I did my master's thesis before and uh, actually I learned a lot uh, not only in terms of study but as well in meeting the new culture in Germany meeting new people it was very very good, I really mean, like
0: Well, congratulations on the paper and thanks so much for taking time to talk to me.
3: Yeah, thank you very much as well for inviting me for this podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast and to our roundtable segment where I'm joined by three other researchers to discuss our experiences in and outside of science and research. Our main topic for today is something that not all our listeners will have undergone, but I'm sure everyone will know at least a few people that have, a life-changing, extremely common experience that we somehow still don't talk about enough in academia and that is what it's like to start and have a family as an early career researcher. I am in the camp of not yet having direct experience of this, so I've brought together some good friends who have to give us their insights. I'm back with Sarah Herman, and we are joined by Muriel Alland, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Uppsala here in Sweden, and by Lucy Kirkpatrick, a postdoc at Antwerp University in Belgium. Uh, Lucy, I'll start with you. I figured out while I was prepping for this recording that we first met 10 years ago at the Kalahari Meerkat project when I was just starting my PhD. So um, what have you been up to since then? And what are you working on in Belgium?
2: Uh, That is a really long time ago. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, since then, uh, I did a master's degree not long after the Meerkat project. Then I did a PhD in Scotland in Stirling. Um, and now I am in Belgium and I am a FWO fellow. So I've got a fellowship looking at how stress and sociality interplay in infection dynamics. And I use a model um, multi-mammite mouse as my model. So as it says on the tin, it has, I think, 12 pairs of nipples. So it is definitely multi-mammite. <laughs> <laughs> it has 24 babies in a go. So it's quite quite an impressive feat by the uh, the the mice there. I was working before as a postdoc on a project looking more at their population dynamics and disease transmission and now I'm looking much more into the individual heterogeneity um, and trying to understand a bit more about how that comes together to really drive transmission dynamics.
0: And you mentioned to me before that you were getting involved in a project with some tiny tech. (laughs)
2: Yes (laughs) because I wanted to look at the individual behavior there isn't actually the the tools out there really to do it effectively in small animals and there are a few systems that they're right like they're really expensive or they're really hard to get like get into using so I approached some engineers at the university ended up talking to them about it and we had a master's project to make tiny miniaturized loggers that we can put on our mice and now that's grown into a whole side project looking at setting up a spin-off company so it's been really interesting learning about like you know kind of the business side of things um, and doing the development with the engineers I, I've never worked with people like that before and it's been really really good fun and now we're kind of looking at getting the tool out there so basically like miniature contact tracing for animals <laughs> 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 it's been great because now I don't need to explain what we do because basically <laughs> oh, yes, contact tracing <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of turned into a real sort of pet passion of mine.
0: Muriel, like me, you moved to Sweden in 2020, but for you, this was a return trip. Um, so, how has the move gone? Are you enjoying being back in Sweden? And what have you been up to in
4: Uppsala? Yeah, so that's been an emergency move out of out of Michigan before the before the border closed this this year. So that was. That was an interesting spring. (laughs) But uh, we're glad to be back here for sure. I think now we settled back in, in a a new place. I'm actually back to my PhD lab for a postdoc. So what's the project that you're working on at the moment? So at the moment, I'm actually working on avian malaria. We have this long-term study of coloured and pipe flycatcher. It's going to be the 25th season uh, next spring. And um, the birds get malaria both in Africa and in Europe, and we're studying how it's being transmitted by, by insect vectors. So we're collecting midges and mosquitoes locally here in Sweden, and we've had collaborators sending samples and blood samples of the birds as well, so we can get a better idea of what strains are around and what insects carry and transmit to the birds
0: so aside from doing all this wonderful research something that you three also have in common is that you all have absolutely gorgeous children so tell me about your kids and what stage you were at when you had them and how old they are now and sarah do you want to go first
1: yeah so i have two kids two boys asher is the oldest he's almost seven i had him at the tail end of my master's degree and Judah is the younger one. He will be two on Saturday, and I had him two weeks after I defended my dissertation. <laughs> so they're my grad school babies.
4: <laughs> yes, I have two kids as well. Um, my oldest is also seven, Julia, and the youngest uh, four and a half, Linnea. Um, I've had them both during my PhD um, in Sweden, so that made for a bit of a longer and more, maybe more inventful, even full PhD.
2: So I have a little son called Oren. He is 10 months today. Uh, He was born pretty much just as the whole pandemic thing kicked off. So it's been quite a, yeah, quite a different start to parenting than I expected. But so far, yeah, it has its ups and downs, but I'm I'm enjoying it. He's a lot of fun, um, a lot of energy.
0: And that was during your fellowship? that you had him?
2: So I actually found out I was pregnant the day I had my interview for the fellowship. Oh wow. A whole new level of stress (laughs) on uh, whether or not you get that fellowship because otherwise my contract was ending about five days after my due date. I started the fellowship only a few months before I had him.
0: I was going to ask you all were pregnant and then gave birth in different countries so what was the Maternity leave, like what was the kind of institutional support at a sort of national level like?
4: Yeah, so we're here in Sweden we get sixteen months to share between parents. So we took, I think, both times about seven months each. We don't get into daycare until they're one year old, so it's really expected that the parents are actually
2: staying at home the first year. In Belgium you don't get very much maternity leave, Uh, well you get three months as your statutory leave um, and then you get four months that you can use whenever that you want to up until the time the baby is 12 and that's for you and the father. So that's quite nice but you have to have worked in your contract for a year before you're eligible for that so I wasn't eligible for that, I actually only got the three months statutory um, and then the children normally go to creche from about six months onwards in Belgium, but they can start from three months. But I took holiday and various like leave and I think I had to bump that up to the six months. So yeah, it's not really expected that you take a lot of time off at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, and maternity leave, parental leave, I guess in the United States is so fluid. It depends on your employer. I think for both of my kids I got 6 weeks and my husband also got 6 weeks. But, you know, even that is kind of on the longer end in the United States. I think it's common to have 4 to 6 weeks if you get it at all. And so over 6 weeks is sort of unheard of. Though so that is starting to shift a little bit here and there and it's really in an academic institution, they have the power to, you know, give more and so I think pressing them and like Kirstie said, to talk more about what it means to be a parent in academia or in our you know lives anyway, outside of academia, it's really important to like highlight why you would want maternity leave. I mean, the mother needs that time because, you know, if, if you birthed a baby, you're having so many changes in hormones and, you know, you're... Mental space and that healing process, that fourth trimester is really crucial to give yourself that space and time to heal. In addition to the fact that you're managing a new human in your life, and so it's really surprising to me that we don't value that time at all. It seems like at least in the United States,
4: six weeks since sounds crazy to me like it's and you're so tired, even like if you're lucky enough that you don't have complications or surgery or anything which happens very often and then you have all this healing on top but but even without that it's like I I don't think there are any (laughs) six weeks old babies that sleep through the night every night right it's just exhausting. (laughs)
1: If there are if you have one of those don't tell your friends.
0: (laughs) No. Uh, So I guess you've touched on a few challenges there of having children as an early career academic yeah i I don't want to like focus on the negative aspects because obviously having children is wonderful if that's what you want um but have there been any other challenges that having kids has posed and what could departments or your peers do that could help people that are going through those challenges
1: i think the One of the things that come to my mind as a challenge would be the lack of flexibility in my schedule. You know, that's because we have to pick them up from childcare at a certain time. That's, you know, because they get sick. There's, you know, all these little things, especially when they're really little and they have to go to the doctor a lot. You have to change, you know, the way that you work a little bit. So, one way to mitigate that as an issue is to be respectful of you know the daily schedule of people that have children so don't schedule meetings at 5 p.m or you know before eight or something you know what i mean just be mindful of that and i think it's about you know communication and understanding and flexibility (laughs) which we could all use during COVID times anyway so maybe we can take some lessons from this pandemic and apply it to life beyond COVID.
0: And that's something that's so easy, like just slightly more sensitive scheduling, or as you were saying, like flexible.
1: Yeah, it's hard to speak up though. So when you want to have change like that, especially if you're maybe a woman with children, it's already more difficult for women to speak up and you know, get that kind of support. And so I think it takes the community of understanding to really make those changes happen
4: so the department I'm at right now which might be part of the Swedish culture more where, where people leave work at four to get their kids at daycare because maybe more people have have kids early on but but it is in the official rules for scheduling courses or seminars that it has to be during daycare hours it has to be between eight and four where it's not forbidden but where strongly discouraged to schedule things in the evenings for example because it could be a problem for access so I think departments can very easily put in something like that and encourage everybody to think about it that's
2: awesome yeah I think a lot of that also depends on on like the the makeup of the department of higher up in the department because if you have uh, an older or possibly more male-dominated or people who don't have those those childcare responsibilities or they're not like the primary person who's responsible for them then it's quite easy to just not notice it it's not like being malicious or anything like that it's just simply that it's not something that you have to deal with therefore you don't necessarily see that that will impact other people and so I think that's quite important if you have that diversity higher up you would definitely see those changes because yeah like for a lot of our social events they're always like on a Thursday afternoon after work or, you know, sort of from five o'clock onwards. And they also generally involve beer because we're in Belgium. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not going to be drinking after work if I have to then go and breastfeed my baby, you know, it's it's just the way that you're going to be doing things is is totally different. So yeah, I think that if you have a more experienced people at their higher level, then there would be more understanding.
0: Have there been any other challenges that have, have come up?
2: I think for me, what I notice now is a lot of time people assume for me whether or not I have the time to do something. And that I find sometimes quite frustrating. Or they expect me to do things very last minute. And it's like, well, I don't have the freedom to be last minute anymore. So, you know, if you want to make corrections to a paper that's due in, on on one day don't ask me the day before to do it because I simply won't be able to you know I I need that running time to do it now but also in the same way don't assume just because I've had a a baby that I'm not interested in other projects because it might be that I say no I've got I've got too much on my plate and that's been a real strength from having a kid is that suddenly you're like no I need to prioritize my time and I think I'm much better at saying no about the things I need to say no to but at the same time I would prefer to make that decision for myself rather than people being kind, saying, "Oh no,
4: you've got too much to do." I would. Mean, I completely agree. I'd rather have an email that say, "Okay, this is happening," and and same for social events, actually, which I guess you haven't quite encountered too much, right, this year. But but it's like assuming you won't join because you have a kid is is a bit sad too. It's like I want to have the the power to say no if I don't or yeah. if I can't. But if I was gonna add one of the also hasn't been a problem this year but but conferences in general um, and there I think um, there is help that that can happen at at lots of organization levels. That's actually where I wanted to put a a small plug if I can but when the time where conferences were happening I I had a list on my website of uh, different types of childcare support that uh, all sorts of conferences um, organized. I started it for myself and then figured people might enjoy seeing it. And and one of the big reasons is also to be able to show to organizers. So and now there are more and more organizers that think about it uh, up front, which is great. But if they don't, so that people are able to email them and be like, look, this is what others have done at conferences to support parents. Maybe the virtual part of it is gonna take on now and, and that might actually not be a bad thing for, for people with young children or that have difficulties moving. But, uh, um, but I've had some amazing examples at some conferences where they have like free childcare during the conference site, and you just pop in and out to breastfeed between sections and I really enjoyed being able to still network. Um, with children. I
1: wanted to bring up this how the, there's been research that shows this past year that the impact of the pandemic has been disproportionately affecting women and people of color, especially women and people of color with children. And just thinking about how children have become or stayed a woman's or, you know, the primary caregiver's problem. And, you know, it's interesting to see that in the format of a peer-reviewed article rather than just as something that we talk about. It's really striking and obvious to me. And I haven't gotten a publication this year. And so I think, again, it's just so important to talk about these differences and support each other and be open and honest and realistic about it. That's a good point.
0: Muriel, you also mentioned before that you moved internationally with small children um, and Lucy, your son was born um, during an international position how How have those processes been
4: yeah uh, <laughs> it 's an adventure for sure i i mean you 're moving a whole family instead of just yourself, so you take all the challenges that I think everybody has with with this kind of forced mobility and you multiply it by a bunch <laughs> um, with like the problem with moving is like you're far away from your support system right so family probably that could help a bit with childcare care and, and things like that but it's it's also been fun in a way I realized like I moved to completely new country but I moved with my family so there was somebody to go back to in the evening. And like, I think it probably helps the the starting phase of being completely new somewhere.
0: Um, I I didn't want to focus on just the challenges, because obviously there are lots of positive things about having a child as an early career researcher. Uh, So I would love to hear any, any things that, yeah, anything positive.
1: I think it's, you know, being in academia and having children, whether it be during graduate school, postdoc, or a faculty position, is, there's a lot of benefits there. Our schedules are pretty flexible. Um, and so the, the negative to that is that you could be working around the clock. But the positive to that is that if you do need to leave and uh, take them to the doctor or um, something comes up, you have some flexibility in your schedule, generally speaking. And so that's a really nice thing. The other thing that I've really enjoyed is just bringing my kids to work, showing them what I do, teaching them about insects and my research and you know, about inquiry and just how um, academic institutions function. Even at seven, my son has quite a great grasp on you know, what it means to go to college and beyond. And I like that he's grown up seeing me do my graduate degree he saw me after i defended watched me get you know graduate and walk across that stage he seen me get my job come and watched as they made my lab and office and so i feel like that's really important for him and you know for us as women and parents to show our paths to our kids and so i think that's really been great we also bring them to conferences uh, like Muriel mentioned Oftentimes we get child care grants through our conferences. And so we take it as an opportunity to allow them to gain exposure and experiences. Asher, my older son, traveled to a conference with us internationally when he was four months old. He's been traveling since basically he was born. So we've been able to show him a lot and teach him a lot through you know, this job. And I, I think that's such a great thing. It's really,
2: really awesome. I don't know whether it's a like a positive, but I'd be interested to hear what people think It's um, next year. I will have to do field work with, um, yeah, with the baby and obviously he will be a toddler then. And I will be going probably to Tanzania again. And that's something where I think it's it is really positive that I do the field work and that potentially um, he can come with me for part of it. And he gets to experience all these different things. And that's something that you wouldn't get in many other careers, I, I think. Obviously, it has its challenges as well, depending on whether or not the fieldwork you can do is appropriate or whether or not your partner can come with you, which um, I think Fraser probably will. But I don't know if if any of you have uh, taken your kids on fieldwork with you before and know how that's gone, because, um, yeah, (laughs) it's a challenge I'm currently trying to weigh up because we are planning in the hopes that next year we'll go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, if you can have somebody come with you, I think it's pretty amazing. My kids have been, they love going to the field and seeing the birds I'm studying and having them in hand and, and things like that. So my first year back to work, uh, my oldest was 10 months, 11? No, yeah, younger probably the first time. Anyways, six months. <laughs> I had actually a whole... Uh, support group because I have very long field season I had two months so I had like a brother-in-law and my parents staying with us in a cabin for several weeks in a row so I would like go to the forest do field stuff come back breastfeed go back (laughs) um later on it's a little bit easier and then um obviously now when when they're at school it's harder right because you cannot really miss school but the the few years before school it's it's a lot of fun too
2: yeah
4: when positive thing I was gonna mention this for me at least you know you always say you have this period maybe midway through your PhD where you have this big yeah. gap and like valley of <laughs> lack of motivation and like what am I doing here and all that and that's when I had my first kid and in a way having this break because I was lucky to have leave but also you're going back home and how no matter how bad your day was like your stats didn't work you couldn't get anything written or anything it's like you arrive home and you have this bundle of energy that you have to put all your full attention into and you have to take your mind off of work there's no other way like you can't keep thinking of your day so I think I'm also a little bit of a workaholic but I think this has helped me actually.
1: I completely agree it's it being a parent uh, has changed the way that I schedule my time for sure, and I, you know, I really take those nights and weekends seriously, you know, and it's important too yes. when you have a family, right? And so I agree. I, I, it's changed my day day to day work schedule to be a little bit more efficient, and you know, intentional.
0: So I'll put you on the spot a bit here. What advice would you give to people who are considering having a family but are maybe worried about the lack of stability in academia or how having a family might affect their careers?
1: I would say that there's never a perfect time or a right time to start a family and have children. It's a really personal decision that should be made by you and your partner if you have one and I feel pretty strongly and I've said this a lot to folks that we shouldn't let our careers dictate our child rearing And I don't think that other people in other professions do that. So why should academia be special? Um, I mean, that said, there's definitely times that it'll be maybe a little bit more challenging to go through something like that, especially if your body is gonna be growing and birthing a baby. Um, So what I also tell people is to try to get as much done during your pregnancy if you're having the baby as possible so that you can really take maternity leave that you're able to have and not work because trying to work during maternity leave is just insanity it's there's an idea that parental leave is like a vacation but it is definitely not you're really navigating a lot of change and a lot of emotions and again a new human so i think taking that time and space is really important and so the other piece of advice that i often give people is to just find a mentor or a friend that you can talk to about it. Reach out because being a parent, you're part of like this unspoken club. And I know that I've talked to many folks that I know that are pregnant. I'll reach out to them directly and, and offer any, any sort of support that I can give. Maybe that's just an ear to listen, or maybe it is some, advice. I mean, knowing that everybody's journey is a little bit different, advice can be taken with a grain of salt. But I think just having that community is really important and crucial to having a kid and a family.
4: Yeah, I I very much agree with what you just said. I was was lucky enough to have a supportive female PhD advisor that, that had kids during her PhD herself. So that's like, I think what you're doing Kirsty, is really important too. We know that role models are important to know that it's possible so that's to even think it was possible uh, but then she told me the exact same thing. there will never be a good time and I think that's that's absolutely true we in academia, maybe we have this this hope that the next stage will be easier. <laughs> I haven't been there yet, but I think every stage of academic and academic carrier comes with a new set of of challenges I don't think later is going to be better necessarily I think it like you said it needs to be right for you and another thing is of course it needs to work um in terms of uh, maybe financially if that if that's an issue things like that But, but once that's that's not a problem you make it you make it work I mean uh you you change your work schedule, you change the work where you work a little bit, but it doesn't mean we're less efficient. I don't think so:
2: Yeah, as I say, I think I, just to reiterate that there is no, no ideal time, no perfect time, and you can't plan things. So I think this is something I really had to think was like it's not something that I can plan in the way that I would plan my field work or you know plan it's something that you have to just let happen. Naturally there is no right time and you will always make it work. And in that sense, academia actually has some bonuses in its flexibility. There's some, some of that is a problem and that it's, it can be unstable, but that you can be flexible, that you can change your work day a lot of the time to, to work with your schedule is also a massive bonus. And I think that's yeah, something I really appreciate.
0: That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and thanks again to my guests, Drs. Sarah Herman, Muriel Olland and Lucy Kirkpatrick and to Dr. Baku Rasolofoniena who was this episode's paper in focus. All links and resources as always are in the episode notes on the website, theweepodcast.org. We recently hit a major milestone of 3,000 downloads. Thanks so much to everyone for supporting the podcast. If you've enjoyed this and past episodes, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and help grow the community. I'll be dropping the spring lineup over the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore we underscore podcast. I've got some really fantastic guests joining and great discussions lined up. So I'm really excited to share that soon. And if you want to get involved as a Paper in Focus or Roundtable guest, drop me an email anytime, hello at theweepodcast.org. I'll be back at the end of February. So until then, stay safe. Bye for now.